This week on Invasion, the podcast, we continue our journey through the year of canon as we talk about 1987's Masters Universe. Does it have the power to overcome being a canon film? Two kids looking for a new thrill. Steve. He is the most feared and powerful warrior. And Paul. A strong-willed woman who knows what she wants and just how to get it. But this time, the thrill went too far. Their target, Canon Films. The home of high-powered, high-voltage motion picture entertainment. With the screen's biggest spectacles, brightest stars, and boldest lineup of explosive entertainment. We're taking motion picture excitement over the edge and your box office over the top. And yeah, I know it feels like it's been like two weeks since we did our last, uh, you know, year of Canon. Cause it was, cause you know, just, just like Canon's film releases were just, there's a lot of them. you never know when the next one's coming and you're like, didn't we just get one? This is what the show's like now. So they're hot and heavy. They're hot and heavy. And it's, uh, the, yeah. So, uh, welcome to invasion the podcast year of Canon. Uh, we're talking about 1987's master's universe as picked by our special guest, uh, Mr. El Goro of the talk without rhythm podcast. Hey, that's me. Yes, uh, and you would be Podman of whatever. I don't know what you're. Uh, <laughs> I'll take you that or Beardman. Beardman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, whatever, because you know the Masters Universe naming conventions. We'll get to that a little bit more later. Are um, pretty on the nose. I don't even know if that's even the way to say it. Decently uh, so, but remember, this was a toy line for children. Yes. So, um, all right. Take it, that, forty-year-old collectors. It, it, oh, <laughs> And we have Steve here as well. Uh, the 40-year-old collector. <laughs> collector. I say 34-year-old collector, so I can still make that line. Yeah. So I feel like this is going to be a little different conversation because I feel like the context for this is much more personal for us. And it, there's a lot more to talk about kind of like the background leading into this film. Um, so because, I mean... The rest of the stuff we've talked about so far, it's been wonderful. It's been a fun journey over the year. This is one that was directly aimed towards us, you know, in, in a certain way, you know, because I mean, we were all growing up through the 80s. I know, Steve, you're just a little older than me, but I'm sure you still were all about Master Universe growing up. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I talked about it on our uh, one of the Toys That Made Us mm -hmm. episodes, uh, just basically that after Star Wars, for like a good solid year, I think Masters of the Universe was all I was really into. Um, and then it sort of split off into also G.I. Joe and Transformers. But yeah, um, that was definitely like a big piece of my childhood as far as like my toy collecting went. And uh, El Goro, so I know you're a little younger than us, but was this something that was in your wheelhouse growing up? To a certain extent, but by the time I came around, because I was born in 85, then when I really became of age, the big toy was Ninja Turtles. And Masters of the Universe uh, and He-Man, by extension, was still very much a thing, but it wasn't the biggest thing. It, I would occasionally see a rerun of the cartoon series. I didn't even have any of the toys growing up. The best my ha household could manage were the weird bootlegs where they just had the standard He-Man body with some sort of monster's head on top of them, which I didn't care for. I, I didn't care. They were awesome. But um, 
really the biggest kind of pull for me with the whole Masters of the Universe franchise growing up as a kid, ironically enough, was this film. That I watched this film a lot more than the actual cartoon. That's fair. Like I and I, I my connection is that yeah, He Man was a big deal. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, so I never got any of the playset. So I got like I th- I'm sure I had He Man. I also had a battle damage He Man where you could hit his chest and it would keep flipping and it'd show the damage. And I think I had the three face guy, whatever his name was, like Triface. Um, many faces. Ma- Manny, Manny faces. Yeah, I, I think Triface is a, a, a name that makes more sense as opposed to Manny faces. But well, there's, but they, there's already have, they already have the Triclops yeah. guy. Yeah, Triclops. Right? Yeah. Um. So, so but, but I feel like this toy line. At least the figures were approachable that even kids that didn't have a whole lot of money in their household could have a figure. And that yeah. was, I think that was a big, big deal. I just think that they may have been off the shelf or just the desire may not have been there for me because, as I said, when the earliest toys that I can remember just lusting after were Ninja Turtles toys or real Ghostbusters toys. And, you know, He-Man toys were there. They were generally things my friends had or maybe a daycare would have a a handful of He-Man toys, but they weren't the big draw for me. Um, Really, so it it just got all of the uh, knowledge of Masters of the Universe largely got wrapped up around the occasional cartoon I would watch or this film. And this film had a much bigger prevalence because we had a copy of it in our house. Yeah, and I think as far as like the toy line goes and the cartoon at that point, probably when you were of prime age to be, you know, into that, um, I say that as the forty-four-year-old who still loves this movie. But um, as Steve, Steve's actually dressed up in full He-Man gear right now, I am like, uh, like not not uh, the yeah. Adam Eternia, but I'm talking He-Man. I'm Faker, uh, which was one of my favorite <laughs> He-Man figures because he was blue. You pictured yourself blue, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think they had moved him into space at that point, and they had actually toned down some of the physical attributes of him and they did a whole redesign I think on both Skeletor and He-Man um, I think that was like 90 maybe 91 so yeah that's New probably... Adventures of He-Man would have been 90 and I, I think I was living in the UK at that point so in the United Kingdom they would there would be this weird thing we wouldn't get uh, cartoons immediately when they came out we'd usually have to wait a couple of years and I think by the time it would have hit the UK we would have moved back to the States when it was no longer on the air so I completely missed <laughs> New Adventures of He-Man I think everybody did. (laughs) I do think, actually, though, when the line was winding down before it relaunched, I think that, like, there were actually some figures that didn't even make it here to the States that they shipped overseas, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. um, Let's we'll do a little bit more context for the film. uh, And I'm sure as we go along, we'll talk more about the toys and everything, because, I mean, you can't. These are intertwined. That's why this movie exists is because of the toy line. So this was released uh, August 7th, 1987. Uh, budget of $22 million, box office of 17.3. So, of course, it just made those canon numbers that we're so used to. Um, you know, you pay, pay a little bit more and don't get much back, but then always tell people that he did really well opening weekend, which this film didn't, but we'll get more into that in a second. Um, number one song when this movie came out was Shakedown by Bob Seger, um, which is from the, right. the, the Beverly Hills 2, Beverly Hills Cop, Beverly Hills Cop 2 soundtrack. Yeah, I can't separate that song from that movie. That movie, that song's great, though. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and so also from um, two things is mentioned here um, on I was trying to find things around this time. And there's a there's a funny thing and then a not so funny thing, because, you know, that's what I do here. So I couldn't find anything like pop culture related around this time. However, in July, so the month before the initial pilot for a, a show called Good Morning, Miss Bliss aired on NBC, 
which was originally a series that was on Disney and they got moved to NBC and then it got retold a year later to become Saved by the Bell. So that I don't, I cannot in my mind imagine Saved by the Bell existing around the same time as this film because I feel like Saved by the Bell, as, as dated as it is, feels much newer than this film, which blows my mind. Really? Well, just the, well, the whole aesthetic of it, it feels so quintessentially 90s. And I think all the part the other thing that runs with it is that show went on forever. It did. Like we saw them grow up and go to college, and somehow their teacher just kept following them from place to place. It's very weird. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's Professor Belding. And it's, <laughs> it's a doctorate teacher, Mr. Belding. It's boss Belding, you know. Uh, just, just like that weird teacher in uh, Boy Meets World. I mean, just think of it yourself. Imagine if you had a teacher that followed you from elementary school through college. That sounds like the creepiest stalker film. Where right? it's just like this guy climbs this ladder to keep always being like, no. I have to be in the same class as that kid. Uh, that's weird. But yeah, I just, for whatever in my mind, I have a hard time separating that I think I can't imagine these existing almost side by side. I don't know. Cause I feel like as much as this movie feels like it's the eighties, it is the, the, the second half of the eighties, but it doesn't feel, we'll get more into it. It's like, it, it feels eighties as hell, you know, but like it feels older than it is by a couple of years, you know, that's the vibe I get. Um, I could be wrong. Uh, other piece of news just for, just to make us feel bad about life. Um, from the New York Times, uh, five southern states at the, on this date, August 7th, 1987, had not obeyed a court order to desegregate their higher education systems, according to a civil rights group. So they were still like refusing the order from the 60s to desegregate their schools. Wow. Well, yeah, that's just frightening and horrifying. Yeah. Talk about things you wouldn't associate be happening in the late 80s. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't bring that up for like the – it's like we could have that whole discussion, but it's like – it's like, wow, I thought we were past that. It's like, nope. <laughs> like, It's also that weird thing of being alive at that time and thinking like, well, there's no possible way that it could have still been going on. <laughs> that was resolved 20 years ago. But nope, apparently not. Oh, evidently, this is something I was reading, that there's still a, um, a, a daughter or a granddaughter receiving um, Civil War payments from the government. Like there was a weird thing. Like, like the last Civil War widow died in like 2008. And there's wow. still like one other, one or two other people out there still getting like payments from the Civil War. That's crazy. That has nothing to do with this film, but I was reading about some stuff and I'm like, that blew my mind. Yeah, I don't even yeah. know how to respond to that. <laughs> I'm sure that I, I, I want to believe the, the the payment stayed static and that they didn't actually increase like like proportionally. It's just like, all right, ma'am, here is your fifty cents for the week or whatever. <laughs> like, <it is> like, <laughs> and well, it's and, always it's always fun to think about timelines like that. And we're already off on a weird tangent, yeah. but this is entirely my fault. But just to think that America has only been around for roughly the lifetime of three or four people. That that's true, yeah. That's because uh, there's even like what was it? There's a president from the 19th century that has grandchildren still alive today because each of people in his generation would have like, like they'd have a child when they're like in their 70s or 80s. Like it's Jesus. it's it's yeah. There there's it's it's weird, right? But anyway, that's not that's not Master's Universe. But I just wanted to provide some context. So um, yeah, uh, should we? Let's just get into like the cast and crew a little bit here. I'm sure we'll talk more about them as we go, but I figured it'd be okay to, to get into that now. Uh, directed by Gary Goddard. Um, I started reading about him. That is, that is a Pandora's box of a person. Um, he uh, ended up writing 48 episodes of the Muppet show. Uh, this is the only film he ever directed. He did screenplay work for um, the Supergirl, dark crystal, and a lot of the guided riding tour stuff that would happen at like the theme parks. He was really big into that. Hmm. But everything else I read about him, he's kind of a piece of shit as a person. Yeah, tremendously big piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. 
But 48 episodes of The Muppet Show, it's like, how do you, I, I just can't, I can't, like, I, that's a hard time setting that in my mind of just like, you're probably around a lot of caring, nurturing people and, and you're Gary Goddard. Like, so here's the thing with uh, writer's rooms though, and I don't know if it was this way back in the day, but I've heard writers say that, you know, a lot of times their names will get put on episodes that they didn't do anything to do, ha- didn't really have anything to do with. Maybe they contributed to the story. Maybe they were in a pitch meeting, something along those lines. A lot of times names will get thrown on episodes when specifically and, they weren't involved. And this will be the first time that I got something wrong tonight. So, I'll, well, no, that's not wrong. No, I, no, no, no. I got something wrong because okay. I read my notes wrong. Gary Goddard did do some of the guided tour stuff, only film was directed. David Odell's the, the writer of the film. And I'm sure Al Goro was going to wait to correct me politely later about this. That's uh, okay. He, <laughs> <laughs> here, I'm going to throw one of these out here. I'm going to just because I. Completely biff that. Um, the, the music was not by John Williams. It was by Bill Conti. Uh, so, no, uh, David Odell, which he wrote some stuff for The Muppet Show, Dark Crystal, Supergirl, and I don't think he's a monster compared to Gary Goddard. So that I want everybody that's going to write in that's not going to write it. Everybody send their telegrams into me about how I was wrong about that. I apologize. See, it, it just ruined my joke about Gary Goddard being Dick Goddard's uh, brother. And for those of you yeah. in Cleveland, that's a really funny joke. But if you're listening to it outside, you probably don't get that. Gary so. Goddard deserves to be attacked by all the woolly bears. That's, that's right. what I'll say about that. So. Regional humor. Got yeah, yeah. So I'm glad, I, I just want to say I caught myself before I was politely corrected because I knew I was about to be politely corrected because El Goro won't, won't give me the hard landing, but he will also make sure that everybody knows what's up. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I was just trying to figure out how to make a segue to the fact that even though uh, John Williams didn't do the score for this, Bill Conti was essentially ripping him off in most of his themes. Um, oh, yeah. Like, this felt very, very Star Wars, like, heavy. Um, but, but All I could say is listen to the main theme for Masters of the Universe, the film, and then compare it to John Williams' theme for Superman. They're pretty much identical. Well, even the title sequence was reminiscent yep. of that. Like, like it was using that prismatic effect. It wasn't the same, like, 3D swooping, but it felt like they were shooting, like, you know, on the roof of the, the Fortress of Solitude and just throwing, like, you know, credits over top of it. Like, it really wanted to let you know that this was, like, something to be associated um, that's the vibe I got. What you're, you know, 100% right. That is, uh, doesn't surprise me that Canon was like, well, that's successful. Let's just do that. Well, they did put out uh, their own Superman movie this year, so I guess they kind of had it on the brain. We'll talk more about that in a second because there's a lot of uh, omens, uh, bad omens that went in before this film was actually produced, and the Superman thing is there. So, yeah, uh, 87 was not a great year for canon. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, you're going to probably correct me on something and be like, no, Bill no, Conti. No, no, no. Um, I was just going to say, you guys basically covered it. Um, I'm sure it was very much, uh, here, do it like John Williams. I'm sure that's exactly what they told him. Well, I mean, and Bill Conti, he did the, the, the music for Rocky, the Karate Kid, uh, Spy Hard. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I love that an, ex- an that excellent composer yeah. in his own. Right. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And did he do like some of the Twilight films recently too? Like, I mean, by recently, I mean like ten years ago. I think he I did. Think you might be thinking of Bill I, Condon, the director. I thought Bill Conti did the music. Maybe you know what? You're probably right because I get everything wrong. So yeah. No, I, I, I just. I'm well, saying Steve, that Bill Condon. I, Steve, sounds I know, like... I know you love the Twilight film, so if you want to, defend <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, let's just get into the cast a little bit here. So uh, I'll let I'll let uh, El Goro because I'm sure you have some notes here and some people you want to champion. So tell us about some of this cast. 
Oh, of course, we have Dolph Lundgren himself playing He-Man, Frank Langella, the great Frank Langella playing Skeletor, uh, Courtney Cox, uh, fresh out of Dancing in the Dark uh, with Bruce Springsteen showing up in here, uh, Barry Livingston showing up as Charlie, the great James Tolkien, otherwise known as every angry bald guy that has ever been in an <laughs> 80s film. That's James Tolkien. Uh, who else do we have in this? Meg Foster with her oh-so-appealing eyes showing up as Eva Lynn. The other people I would definitely want to highlight, Chelsea Fields as Tila, John Cipher as Man-at-Arms, Billy Barty. Sorry, I had to I almost uh, threw out an F-bomb in there. <laughs> and I know it's not loud. Well, Steve but did I, last I, that's episode. Yeah. With, when it comes to Billy Barty, because I I love Billy Barty, and uh, I think the only uh, person of note is Anthony D. Longus, who plays the character of Blade. So the uh, the person, uh, two other things here. Uh, uh, Christina Pickles, which that's a name that just sounds great to me. She was the sorceress, so she was the one trapped in the you know the the force field through most of the film. That's what I mentioned because uh, she ended up going to play Courtney Cox's mother and friends. Yeah, of course she did. So that's I think that's fun. Uh, and then hopefully we also, they talked about their stirring experiences on the set of Masters of the Universe. Yeah, because I would hope that that would be the thing that Ross has never got to connect with them over. You know, uh, so <laughs> um, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil uh, was Kevin Corrigan, who was the boyfriend. That's Tom Goddamn Paris from Star Trek Voyager. That's right. I overlooked and, him, and I, it was like I kept looking at him. I'm like, he looks like. I just I couldn't place it. Like I just kept thinking like he looked like um oh crap um uh, what's his name uh from uh. Scream and Scooby Doo, um, Shaggy. He looked a little bit like, um, oh, what's his name? Oh, why am I blanking out his name now? You <laughs> oh, looked at me. Uh, and why I... am I blanking out his name? Uh, <laughs> Matthew Lillard. Matthew a little Lillard. bit. He yeah. looked a little bit like Matthew Lillard. I'm like, that's too, he's too young for that. Uh, but uh, yeah, just some moments here. I just want to mention about the cast. Like Dolph Lundgren, this was his first role after Rocky IV. Um, like some highs and some lows there, we'll say. And I know we'll defend, we'll talk about his performance here. I don't, I don't, I don't think he, if there's things to talk about this film, I don't think he's the problem with part of, with with parts of the film. I'm not, I will not say that. Well, uh, considering the man could barely speak English at this point, I think he did a fine job. And his his accent would wobble, but it wasn't bad at times. Like it was okay. And also, he's supposed to be from another world. He could have whatever accent you want him to have. I don't care. But exactly, yeah. Uh, Franklin Gella, though, as Skeletor, is the MVP of the movie. Makes me very happy. We'll talk more about that later. But uh, if if people have not seen Frost Nixon, this is from like ten years ago. That's an amazing film. Like Incredible him and, film. Yeah, him playing Nixon with Michael Sheehan playing um, uh, David Frost. I think is his name. It's a great movie. And also, uh, Franklin Gella was in the Button. Or is it the box? It was the box. That's the box. The, the box. Yeah, which is the Button story. But yeah, I, I love him. Uh, and also. Uh, Agora, I don't know if you know Courtney Cox. This wasn't her first film. I'm sure you probably have that noted. What was her film before this? Um, Down to... Twisted by Albert yeah. Pune. Well, all right. <laughs> I, no, like, I just bring that up because Albert, Albert Pune has... Pune has a celebrated history with canon. <laughs> well, that and he has a legacy after Masters Universe, and we'll talk a little bit about that too later. We'll get there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's uh, also James Tolkien as the the detective who's the angry bald man. And everything his last film role, he's still with us, was the drunken uh, piano player in Bone Tomahawk. Indeed, he was, which was kind of surprising when he showed up in there. Not because he's not a great actor, but I honestly <laughs> wasn't sure he was still alive. I um, did not recognize him. I, I unrelated to anything. I watched that movie the first time this weekend, and when I when I read the tr like all this, I'm like, holy crap, that was him. Uh, cool movie, but. Yeah, I just had a couple of notes, too, that I wanted to throw in here about the cast. One is, is uh, did we mention Meg Foster? 
as we Eva did. Lynn. We did. Okay. And her her wonderful eyes. Okay. Um obviously everybody knows her from They Live. Um but did you know that she was originally the the original Cagney on Cagney and Lacey? I didn't know that. So I, the reason I was not aware of that. Yeah, the reason I found this out was as I was on Sunday I was looking for something just to throw on and on Prime they had, you know, oh the original Cagney and Lacey and I was like, I, I remember watching it as a kid. I don't have very many memories of it. And then it started, I'm like, wait, that's that's Meg Foster. So we did a little bit of looking into it. She was replaced, and this is very much in line with how 80s television worked. And I quote this, but I, I use this in quotes. This is not my quote. <laughs> um, she was uh, taken off the series because she appeared to be too dikey. So <laughs> that, oh, no. that's 1980s. <laughs> CBS, so I is think. Is that why they so, got Tyne Daly in there? Well, Tyne Daly was was already there. Oh, okay. She was, so, she, okay. Um, but my wife and I were both like, I don't remember her being on the show. So we were researching it, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe this. So that was just I, both. I have, I have a similar TV anecdote that goes along those lines. Okay, so uh, qu- quick question time. Uh, what is the name of the human uh, alter ego of the Hulk in the comics? Oh, it, in the comics, it's um, Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner, yeah. Okay, now what was his name as portrayed by uh, Bixby in the television show? David Banner. You know why they called it? They changed it to David because Banner. they felt Bruce was too homosexual. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that since the Hulk would be like angry that someone would assume his sexuality, that he would Hulk out over that. I don't know how I feel about that name change. Well, you see, when I when I first heard that story, it just made me laugh because the first homosexual couple I was ever introduced to, they were friends of my uh, mother's from college. They were two men named Bruce and David, <laughs> and and they both wore purple jeans. It was the weirdest. It was amazing. <laughs> so we went to go see Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It was great. That's wonderful. And then I had uh, just one other uh, note: is uh, Chelsea Field who plays Tila. I thought this was interesting. She's Scott Bakula's wife, which I hate to put it like she's Scott Bakula's wife, but I was looking through her her, um, her filmography. It's and not I, very big. It's not very big, but I also realized that I had just recently discovered this movie called Death Spa about, I don't know, in the last year, and uh, it's exactly yes. what it sounds like, but um, she's in that as well. Wow. I'm like, oh, that's weird. She's in Death Spa. And then I'm looking for uh, through more information. I'm like, wait, she's married to Scott Bakula? And it was just, it seemed odd that, like, I don't know, I... I I guess you just don't expect to find like two other celebrities that are, I guess, both. Well, so the this... funny thing about that is that she, like, because well, I'm sure because of a familiar connection, she was in seven episodes of NCIS New Orleans, which he's the lead in. So that makes sense. There's a New uh, Orleans version of that show. Yeah. I, as much as I love Scott Bakula, I will never watch an NCIS show. That's just, that's just my, one of my rules. But uh, what if they end that series? In NCIS Cleveland. I mean, I mean, how many deep fried related deaths could you investigate, though? You know, like um, this guy. Hey, there there this, could be, you know, drowning deaths and chemical spill deaths and methamphetamine overdose deaths. And- I mean, you're right. I, I am. Um, I am like not giving Cleveland its full potential of crimes that could happen. Um, you know what? Everybody always overlooks Cleveland. Like, oh, no, that guy has a pierogi stuffed out his throat. Oh, no. Uh, um, as long as you get Drew Carey to guest star. In one of those somebody, gets, somebody gets crushed by the free stamp. You know, it's great. <laughs> We can make this happen. Yeah. Um, so I, I just want to mention there's some all these weird Star Star Trek connections because obviously he was in uh, Enterprise and we mentioned um, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil as Tom Paris and you had mentioned previously Al Gore about uh, Anthony DeLongas. Um, uh, he actually had a recurring role in the first two seasons of Voyager. 
So, it, it, yeah, there's a lot of uh, weird things going on with Star Trek here. Another Star Trek connection? Uh, Skeletor's facial appliances got frequently reused throughout Star Trek. They would pop up in the various sequences where Worf would be on the holodeck fighting skull-faced monsters. Perfect. Nice. There you are. Yeah. Yeah, I only had one other thing that I was going to uh, throw in there. I was just going to ask Paul if uh, C- NCIS New Orleans, if that should end and we just find out that he's leaped out of the body <laughs> and we find out the entire series is just a quantum one, leap. One of my friends made the joke about, because we watched the last episode of Enterprise where you have uh, Archer give this big speech and it's supposed to be like the launch of like the Federation. Like, in, Isn't in, that mostly like Riker and oh, no, Holodeck. Troy though? Yeah. But it's Riker. Riker's <laughs> like, he's always like as the chef in these things, like talking to Archer. And it's like, you just see William Frakes in like a, a, a chef's outfit, like cutting vegetables, talking to Archer. And it's supposed to be this weird... Like Riker dealing with a decision, but he's watching Archer make this big, you know, speech, and that's the end of the, that's the end of the series. And we always joked about how it'd be funny to put that whole series online pirated. And at the very end, you just have the, you know, the the bacula like leaping out at the end and be like, <laughs> "What just happened?" I mean, I generally assume every Scott Bacula vehicle post Quantum Leap is just a continuation of Quantum Leap. I that that makes everything a lot more fun. I think uh, unnecessary roughness was him leaping into an older quarterback that just needed to save the day and get a school back together and Sinbad working again. So, yeah. There you go. <laughs> anyway. All right. Uh, that's been that was a fun diversion, and I'm sure there'll be more. So, hey, look and at that. You said our episode wouldn't go long. It's 25 minutes in, and we should probably play the trailer. <laughs> we should probably play the trailer of the movie because that's what we do here. So, we're going to listen to the trailer from Ash Universe, and we'll get back and talk about this thing more and proper. At the far end of the universe, there is a planet ruled by a being of utter evil. <laughs> And there is only one man who dares challenge him. They are locked in a battle to the death. A battle that will take them across the heavens. Stop him! A battle that will finally be fought. I want them to get down and brought to me! Across the face. Police! Nobody move! Of Earth. I think I'm gonna need some backup. Can you show us the way? Of course. No. Somebody help me! distant galaxy, they have come to Earth. Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, Frank Langella as Skeletor. Only they have the powers to be. Masters of the Universe, live the adventure. That live the adventure. That sounds like we're about to get on the ride for Masters of the Universe. We're just going to like, yep. you know, like a, like a sewer skate hovering through all of uh, like whatever the town they're in, like at the end of the film, the Skeletor abandoned town. <laughs> yeah, where was everybody? That, that that raises more questions for me. So, um, all right, before we get in, like we, I know we're twenty five minutes in. Uh, before we get into the synopsis, 
maybe I should say, like, we talked a little bit about watching this film and being our relationship with Master Universe. Uh, Elgora, you said that you had a copy of this film growing up. Um, so clearly you watched this a lot as a kid. Um, Steve, when was your first experience with this film? So I saw this in the theater when it originally ran, something to much of the horror of my wife. Um, whenever we do these canon episodes, you'll always end with the question, would you recommend this to anyone? And I will almost always say, you know, I use my wife as the example of whether or not I would recommend this to people. But she was like, you were watching this? You were, what, 12 going on 13? I'm like, yeah. And, like, you know the things that I'm into. Like, why would it be surprising to you that I would go see this film? But um, I also, I think I've mentioned this before on the show, from, like, 85 to 89, my brother worked at the movie theater. Um, So I got to see everything for those years for free. So, like, it was a lot of times... Uh, where my parents would go see something and I might go see something else by myself or um, my my friends and I would get in free so we would go and we got free soda and popcorn so that was awesome as well so it was a good way to just get rid of the kids for free so <laughs> perfect so here's the admission um, I never watched this growing up I, hmm. I'd never seen this at all um, so if you go back to one of the earliest episodes of Invasion of the Podcast so that's what four years ago uh, so Cleveland cinemas had a 12 hours of terrible cause they normally do a 12 hours of terror that is highly attended and a lot of fun where they'll show 12 hours of horror films. So the guy who does the program for that, and I forget his name right now, the guy's awesome. Uh, he decided to do a 12 hours terrible and I still have my little place card from that. Um, so I went with a buddy of mine and they said, you buy your tickets and if you get through the entire program, they'll give you $5 back. Right. So <laughs> Steve, let, Steve, what am I holding up right now? I'm you holding, holding $5, which was given to me. I did not get rid of this $5 bill. It was given to me after the end of this. Uh, so this was like four years ago. Uh, the, the, the films in order <clears throat> over the top, which is another Canon film, which that factors in. We may talk about that a little bit later, but that was a big boondoggle for Canon. <laughs> uh, Miami connection, which I, I, first time I'd seen it there. I adore that film plan nine from outer space drive angry in 3d. Uh, which was a oh, lot of fun. Man, that's a great film. That, that Drive Angry is fun. I'd seen it before, and I'm like, 3D? Yes. Uh, the Baby, which I've talked about previously on the show, and I've now seen it like four times. Uh, the Happening, um, which I saw this for the second time in the theater, and it just despised it even more when we watched it there. And the last film, going up from like five, four or five in the morning until like, you know, like six, seven o'clock in the morning was Master's Universe. So the first time I'd watched this film was after a stretch of those other films, and I was already tired and frustrated. And so when this film started, I'm like, well, this is going to be fun. And then about 10 minutes, I'm like, is it over? Like, just all I wanted to do was leave the theater. <laughs> um, but my, myself and my friend Rob, we stuck through. And that's why I think maybe I have this um, – my, my hatred towards the character of Gwildor is just pure – and just it's volcanic. And I think it might be related to, to the fact that I was awake for so long and just wanted to leave the theater. And, and, you know, my, my wife, uh, my fiance at the time, she was, you know, she wouldn't come pick me up until after it was over. Cause like, it was like early in the morning. So I wasn't going to wake her up early. So I had to sit there and be like, all right, I'm too tired to, I want to fall asleep, but this movie needs to be over now. <laughs> but I finished it and I got my goddamn $5. So that was my first experience with Master Universe was after a gauntlet of like questionable films. So I, my, my expectations the second time watching it for this, the show were low. I'll just put it that way. 
You see, I, I can't hate the character of Gwildor just because he is played by Billy Barty. And Billy Barty was in so many movies that I grew up watching as a kid. I mean, he was in Legend. He was in um, uh, UHF. He was in yeah. Willow. He, he just is that, that little person actor that got a lot, a lot of work. I mean, his credits go back to The Bride of Frankenstein mm-hmm. in 1935. Yeah, no, he was, <clears throat> like you said, he was Noodles Macintosh, which I, I love <laughs> I love him in UHF. Macintosh! Yeah, yes. Um, so that was my, like, so I, I guess I should say we all approach this from different times in our lives, and I was the old, like, I was much older watching this for the first time, and, and not the best context. So what's weird about... Not Billy Barty, but Gwildor as a character is, is that my memory when seeing this in the theater was a lot of people were like, I don't understand why it's not Orko. Why is it this new character as opposed to Orko? Which is weird because I remember everybody also hating Orko. So it's like, you don't like Orko, but you're asking for it to be Orko. And then it's this other character and you're hating him simply because he's not Orko. So I don't know. I don't know that there was anything they could have done with that miss that that type of character i was gonna say mystical character but that's not really correct but that uh he, he's the jar jar binks of this this not this film but of the the of all films no uh, yeah, well, he, he, he's, he's the comedic levity of, of it yeah. Yeah. and there's actually uh funny enough two reasons why they didn't end up going with orco depending upon who you talk to one was the special effects required to it you know orco is a flying character and they didn't want to have to deal with that the other side of it and this goes back to edward r pressman who originally optioned the rights for masters of the universe when they optioned the rights to this property it was only predicated off of the toy line and if you guys re- remember back where when the toy lines were first coming out and when they were first coming up with the story the story that was originally behind the Masters of the Universe line was considerably different than the story we got in the cartoon series. And it was much more of, you know, kind of a traditional barbarian type story. And really where the script kind of came out of was not necessarily a direct adaptation of the cartoon series, but more an adaptation of the toy line itself. That makes sense. <clears throat> so... That, yeah, I could see why they would make like because there's a lot of the bounty hunters, so to speak. Like I don't know what you would call them, the henchmen, the Skeletor. Other than Beastman, I think all of them were created for the movie. They were, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so also, uh, you mentioned <clears throat> I'm getting choked up because there's no uh, there's no uh, Orco in the film. Uh, so the, the so this came out in '87. Uh, a little bit of context for how much Canon wanted this to be like the home run swing. Uh, so the book I've been reading, um, The Hollywood of Go-Go by Andrew Yule, I didn't realize this book was published in 87. So this was published before Mass Universe actually came out in the theater. So think about that. This whole thing's like th- like 200 some pages of like questioning Canon's like uh, bookkeeping practices. And it was in the middle of its free fall at that point. So in 86 at the Cannes Film Festival, which is in the documentary Electric Boogaloo, how they kind of took over. Like they, they, they just took over like everybody's attention for that. Mash Universe was announced there along with, and I, I don't have the page in front of me. I'm trying to find it again. Like if it said here, if you counted everything they announced, including like their, um, the, the films they were buying distri- distribution rights for, they announced 93 titles Good at Lord. that can, uh, film festival. Like, and so the whole thing there was also that they had three films that were in contention for the Palme d'Or. One of them was Runaway Train, which we talked about two episodes, like two months ago. 
And then one of them was the Othello, and I forget what the other one was. And they, basically, everyone just thought this thing was going to be a shoe in. Like they were finally going to get their recognition and get their award, and this is going to be their launch pad to get all these films done and all the press. And then um, uh, there was another film that just came in that wasn't even completely done yet. Uh, that was a work in progress that was still three months out, and it took the it took the award <laughs> from them. So the fact that they were so hedging their best and announcing all this, and this was also whenever the SEC was starting to look at them and they were starting to get their questions of their bookkeeping, they were talking about how like this is all going to be good and we know how to save money, and they announced Master Universe, and they even said at this point, and this goes back to what you're saying earlier, El Goro, about Superman 4, they're like, we've even found a way to cut $5 million out of Superman 4. <laughs> Like they were talking in advance about how, how, how good they are at all this and how much they're going to make and how they're saving money. And 87 was pretty much like the death knell for Canon, but they were, they kept hoping for that home run swing. And this was one of those ones that they wanted to swing hard for because, you know, like this feels like, and we haven't even gotten to the story yet. It's a successful toy line that was making hand over fist money. Uh, It's Canon that, you know, does things on a fairly limited budget, but you have some named talent. Like all the ingredients are there that this film should have been profitable and successful. But we'll we'll talk more about it. I know I'm kind of hedging my bet talking about it, but I wanted to mention that they had 96 uh, titles announced previous to this one for the next year. So, um, anyway, uh, so the film. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, other than this. There's a lot of expectation going into this, and I wasn't sure. When I watched it again, I was for sure, because the first time I'd seen it, I was kind of angry at it the entire time. Uh, I was surprised at the actual level of production design and costume design with this film. That actually surprised me the second time through. Yeah, I mean, from from a st- strictly visual standpoint, at least particularly with the realization of the attorney and characters, there's actually some really good design work going on here. I know you yeah. were... Uh, 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 taking shots at uh, the comparison between the production art versus what ended up on screen. But what actually did end up on screen looks pretty good. And considering that they were able to draw upon artists like uh, Mobius from France, you it kind of does lend it this sort of weird, almost uh, heavy metal vibe into so many of the character designs. And I, I, I actually think that many of them really ho- still hold up today as an example of kind of fun, weird sci-fi stuff. Well, and I think the stuff that Steve linked on our page uh, that shows that that the some like half of those designs actually showed up in one capacity or another in the film. So that's cool. And I know the director talked about how he initially wanted to hire Jack Kirby to come in and do concept work, and they and Cannon wouldn't do it. Imagine that. Like, yeah, that, that, I mean the entire film, and I'm sure we'll get more into this, is pretty much one big homage to to Jack Kirby. Yeah, and I would say if you're looking for to make a modern day masters of the universe, I would say maybe look at like something along the lines of say Thor Ragnarok, which has got Jack Kirby all over it. Like that's kind of the way how you do that visuals. You know, they, I don't think they still could have been able to pull that off in the eighties, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're going to go that route, I kind of think that that might be the standpoint from which to, you know, at least start to pull from. Um, And I realize that, you know, it's, Thor is, a, is is Marvel, and you know you can't really steal from them, but it's canon. They were stealing from everybody anyway. So, um, you know, when it comes to whatever the new iteration is, and there's, I I don't know how much we want to talk about this, but I I feel like there's a new rumor every like year or two 
um, of a new Masters of the Universe. I feel like Mick G was attached to it at one point, um, and I'm blanking on everybody else. I only remember Mick G because you know he's he sounds like a McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, there's supposed to be one coming in 2021. Uh, yeah, that's supposed to be like in pre-production. But right I now. feel like for the last 20 years, there's every other year there's some news that about, oh, yeah. you know a new version of it moving forward. Yeah, apparently the production, the uh, actual production was supposed to have begun in mid-July of this year. I haven't heard any um, any updates on it since then, but it does kind of feel like we're closer towards a new Master of the Universe film than we've been in a long time. Well, and just also point of reference, among that 94 titles that were announced at that Cannes Film Festival, one of them was Spider-Man, one of them was Captain America that yeah. Canon was going to do. And the Spider-Man thing also ties in later when we get into the last film that we're going to talk about at the end of the year, which will tie directly into this and we'll get there when we get there. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's been things cooking. Um, so with this, it's like, um, you, so this, this film does feel different to me than the other Canon films we've watched. Cause I feel like there is a weird level of polish to a lot of this until you get to, like towards the end, whenever they do the big like um, hoverboard chase or whatever you want to call it, the hover disc chase, that gets a little that the, the movie gets away from itself there. But the rest of this film, actually, I I understand why they transition from Eternia to Earth because of budgetary reasons. It's a bummer though because the the painted backdrops of like you see Castle Grayskull, and then like the internal like workshop of Gwildor, and then when you actually get inside the palace, like the actual throne room of of Castle Grayskull, that's all amazing. And I really, mm-hmm. really dug it. And it's just a bummer because it's like, that's the film I want to see throughout. And, you know, you can tell from the budget, they're like, nope, we can't show anything else. We're going to show this throne room like three separate times. And that's Eternia. Yeah. And, and that simply comes down to budget at that point. You know, it's cheaper for them to lean heavier on stuff that they don't necessarily have to pay to build. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also it's it's funny to me because I was thinking about that as I was watching it because um, that was certainly the one main complaint that everybody had was, um, and I don't even know if it was ever really about the story as much as it was just taking the setting out of Eternia because that's what fans wanted, that's what people wanted, and when I say fans, I mean people who are like me who are in their early teens um, going into the film. But um, I look at what they did do and there's still some really impressive things that they did where I'm like you guys made this gigantic um you know skiff that Frank Langell is sitting on unless that's a miniature and they composited on him I'm pretty sure they built that yeah they built it yeah, yeah. and like it's interesting because you're like okay if that wasn't on just a city street it would be way more impressive at least um and I I think that's the same thing like when I look at the beastman design because that's the one character who is from uh, the original He-Man line of toys. He would look great in a sci-fi setting, but when you put him in like a school gym, he doesn't <laughs> look as good. And it may have also been a consideration towards the average viewer. You know, yes, uh, Master of the Universe and He-Man were popular with the little kids, but if this was going to be the big success that they needed it to be, they needed to draw draw in a broad audience. And to do it as a strictly fantasy film may have been seen as too much of a risk. I mean, Legend didn't exactly set the world on fire a couple of years prior to this. So maybe they thought by putting it in, in the quote-unquote real world, it 
would give people more of an in. It would help sell some of the weirder elements of the whole mess of the universe story. Yeah, even with like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which I, I wrote about on the blog, that was from a few years previous to this with Sean Connery. That gets a little a little loopy. So it's like, yeah, I can see how grounding this in like, you know, but I wish they would have explored more of the fish out of water aspect of it. Like that, sure, that would have been a lot more fun to actually have He Man kind of like not understand the world around him a little bit. Like like Steve mentioned Thor, like the first yeah. Thor film that's half of that movie yeah it's him like you know slamming a mug down asking for another cup of coffee and then going to the pet shop and asking for an animal to ride around on that's the he-man movie we needed Uh, and not that i'm saying this is bad i mean there's the whole bit with uh man in arms and uh tila and um and gwildor which i I put in my notes here um what i have here uh Robbie's rib and chicken would have been a weird He-Man playset, is what I put in my notes. <laughs> well, I wonder if some of that also comes down to uh, Dolph Lundgren's uh, acting ability at this time. As we mentioned, he really didn't have the greatest command of English at this point in his career. Now he speaks it absolutely fluently. But perhaps there were perhaps there was more designed in the original script of He-Man interacting with things on Earth, and then it kind of got pared back. Because when you watch the film, He-Man actually doesn't have the greatest amount of screen time in this film. That that's true. It does kind of lean more on the supporting cast, and then Courtney Cox and um, you know, uh, um, what's his name, um, Tom. Uh, that's not his real name in the movie, but the, uh, Kevin Corrigan, his character of Craig, I think is his name. Like uh, this movie goes from being like this big, like you know, sword and board fantasy thing. To like, oh, this girl's moving out of town and her parents died in a plane crash that she blames herself for. Like, it takes this weird turn. Um, so, but I, I again, I, I get that you, if you're going to do a film like this, it's okay to have that character that's the stand in for us. And again, this is not me damning the film because it is what it is, but it, it, we do spend a lot of time with them. And that's not why we want to see a Master Universe film. I think also, you know, sometimes. When it comes to the source material, you know, I think it was a year or two previous to this, I had also seen uh, the He-Man and She-Ra movie, because uh, they debuted She-Ra in a film. I think it was just Like called, an animated film? Yeah, it like was an I... animated film that played in theaters, and I saw that in the theater as well. And I watched that, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, and, uh, you know, you go back and watch those, and there's, there's definitely... I guess, I guess the way I'm, I should I should put this is is that like, yes, it's silly to maybe move them out of Eternia, and I understand your point about giving them a point of view character, but at the same time, I don't think that this plot of this film is any more r- ridiculous than anything that would have been in the cartoon series or True. in that film. So it's sort of you know it's it's apples and oranges. Like you want it to be something, but at the same time. The source material up to that point had never really been this, you know, yeah. stellar thing that had. Is it and the, plus, yeah. plus with the move towards you know a, a terrestrial setting, it, it gave us some of the joys of the movie, like the presence of James Tolkien, who doesn't really ex- work <laughs> outside of. Well, okay, he can he can work in basically three settings: the modern day 1950s America or the or the Wild West. Those are the only places you can put James Tolkien where he his particular style of acting works. Or yelling at what, Tom Cruise whenever he decides to buzz the tower. Well, that, that's modern day America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, yeah, yeah. That, these are the only settings you can put James Tolkien in where it works. And it also by giving us the context of the kind of earthbound setting, it reinforces the fact that ultimately. The, 
the driving force of the universe is synth music. And we, that's a, that's an important revelation. Oh, I hate the cosmic keys so much. I hate that thing. <laughs> I, I, you know, like it's just, it, it reminded me when they were the first time, whenever uh, Tom Paris was noodling with it in the graveyard, that sounds really inappropriate. Um, <laughs> you know, just Tom Paris uh, noodling the cosmic key in the graveyard. It reminded me of that moment and a strange brew whenever they grabbed the discs out of the computer and, and one of them was like Rick Morris, like, go ahead and put it on. Um, no, was it Dave Thomas? Is like, oh, this must be one of those uh, future, like, uh, like um, synth records or whatever, in like punk records. He puts it on and you hear that weird warbling noise. He's like, oh, that does sound like that. Like, I feel like that's what that was. Like, I don't know. Like, I get you got to have a MacGuffin, and this is the most pure MacGuffin. Well, it's also interesting to me, and I don't know how much music rights were, you know, 35 years ago versus what they would cost now, uh, or I guess 32 years ago, but like, Purple Haze is, you know, playing, and yeah. obviously, you know, that's a very well-known song. Um, there is some, some, yes, the town is a little sparse, I will admit, but at the same time... The economy cannot support that music <laughs> shop, I'll I say mean, that. they destroyed that music shop, yeah, like, you know, really I mean... really did. <laughs> um, although I do think I want to be Charlie for uh, Halloween this year. I got to find me a nice yellow and, and multicolored jacket, <laughs> and uh, I think he was wearing like a... a Oh, was it like a leather beret? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, do that. That'd be that'd be amazing. I will I will dress up as uh, as Gwildor and just let my ear hair grow out, and it'll be amazing. That's what happen. <laughs> and I'll take my one eye, kind of. Sh- I'll do a Forrest Whitaker eye with the Billy Party oh, eye. <laughs> I'm not wrong. <laughs> um, no, um, so the the cosmic key. It, it, it makes as much sense as anything else. And if that's what gets them from point A to point B and it becomes an episode of sliders to get them from, you know, eternity to earth, that's fine. Like I, I have like that. It, the only reason it bugs me is just because it's like, it becomes this thing where the, the, the Tom Paris doesn't realize that every time he presses the keys, bad guys show up. And it's like, that keeps happening over and over again where he's like, Oh shit went wrong. But guys, check out this cool groove. I did, you know, to like be, to be fair though, he only, they only uh, go after him once. And that was like the third or fourth time he hit the button. It was, it's all in his wake. So he doesn't realize that he's putting his girlfriend in danger. He doesn't realize that he's threatening the town. It's only when they bust in on his own house that he realizes, Oh, maybe I should stop hitting this button. After he uh, conveniently cleans up the counter by taking the Burger King and putting it in the sink. Did you they notice are. that, like, the bag and the cup? He just, like, I'm going to just move that off to the sink. I, my my place is clean now. It was very weird that it it, it was clearly plot product placement, but not very well thought out product placement. So <laughs> I don't know why they couldn't have him just throwing it in the garbage can as opposed to moving it in the sink. Or but... why couldn't they have Courtney Cox's character working on a Burger King? I don't know. That feels like maybe a missed opportunity. Well, it's weird, too. I don't know if we actually see a Burger King in there or not, but the... City Street, and I forgot to check and see if the set that they built was also used for Monster Squad, but that that main street uh, reminds me of the end of Monster Squad, uh, where the the showdown happens with all the monsters, so... um, but there's a Burger King on that street as well, and that's very much an obvious product placement there as well. So perfect. Yeah. Um, so El Goro, question for you: the the, Yo. the the pink vehicle that Gwildor magics up and makes it run off of whatever magic juice neutrinos. Uh, neutrinos. Uh, it, it it looks like a Cadillac, but it looked a lot like a '58 Plymouth Fury to me. Did it look it, a lot like? It looked like Pink Christine to me. 
It kind of did, but the fact that it ran off of neutrinos, that immediately made me think of the Ninja, the Ninja Turtles characters of the neutrinos that also drove around in a souped-up uh, sci-fi Cadillac. So oh. I, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so uh, I also have my notes here as we're like talking through, because I, I, I watched this and I was like drinking as I was watching it, because you know why not. I wrote Man at Ribs, because they're eating the ribs at, uh, at the restaurant. I feel like it's appropriate. Um, I, like, I like the phrase of good journey. I, I think I want to say that to everybody I know now where it's like, hey, I'm going to Subway. Do you want anything? No. Good journey. Good journey. Yeah. We well, don't say goodbye. We yeah. say good journey. Yeah, Maybe we should end the show every week now with good journey. <laughs> but yeah, it's better than what we used to do where it's like, we're going to get you. That's a way better thing to say. <laughs> what? <laughs> Nothing oh. like ending a podcast with a subtle threat to the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, everybody. It was pretty good to see you. You're next. What? No. No, it's invasion of the podcast. Like, we're, we're going to get you. No, it's uh, that <laughs> So it's good like, journey. Well, I feel like it'd be like, hey, I want to go to CC's Pizza. Great. Good journey. Like, just, you know, whatever. Um, I, I liked it. I liked that it was very solemn. Um, uh, and then I also believe that this movie is the secret origin of the band, the Rembrandts. I feel like that's also the thing that we don't know about, that uh, Tom Paris is actually the keyboard player for the Rembrandts. Steve was looking at me that they did the theme song for the Friends show. Oh, right. I was just trying to make a connection. <laughs> right. I'm like... Two plus two makes four. Working it. I thought that joke would land better. It did not. Okay. Um, I also want to point out that Skeletor has Google Earth whenever he was zooming in on the location of the Cosmic Key. Did you notice it was like this big top-down view of the Earth and it kept zooming in? Yeah. I was like, I didn't know Skeletor worked for Google or, <laughs> or Google is actually run by Skeletor. I didn't know that. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Um, and then, yeah, anyway. And also like when you have the principle from back to the future, you know, shit is real is what I put in here as well. I think it's appropriate. I had, I had a lot of fun with this film. Um, I, I wish that they would have maybe incorporated more of like, because you, you know, Gore, you're talking about like the, this is based off the toy line. Some of the, the bounty hunters, like I know we talked about, um, beast man. I like that blade just seems to be created just for this film because it's the guy who does the stunt choreography. I thought that was yeah. like, we need to give him a job. And he's great. He just doesn't deliver lines the best, but he looks badass. Well, he does okay for what he has to what he has to work with. I mean, yes, it's a little bit over the top, but the majority of his lines are done opposite Frank Langella, who is absolutely swinging for the fences on all of yes. his line delivery. And I think we need to address that. I love unabashedly, non-ironically, I love Frank Langella in this movie. He looked like he was just having so much fun playing Skeletor and just like Raul Julia is it was able to elevate in retrospect Street Fighter with his over-the-top performance as M. Bison in my opinion Frank Langella is right there in his performance as Skeletor yeah so per the Wikipedia because it's about as far as I do my research they, they said when offered the role Langella said I, I didn't even blink I couldn't wait to play him uh, he cited his then four-year-old son's love of Skeletor while running around his house yelling P-Man. P-Man. He-Man's. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different character. He I just made it, yeah. Um, his battle cry of, I have the power, uh, is the reason he chose to play He-Man's arch enemy. Like, that is, like, he just knew. Like, the, like as, as much, and I, the, only, the only problem I have with his prosthetic is just that the nose looks a little weird, and I think that's the thing people focus on because it looks like a deer nose as opposed to, like, you know, the end of a, a skull. Everything else about his character and his face works. Like, in the, in the way he delivers every line, like, he actually has some legitimately good dialogue in this film. Like, whenever he has He-Man captured and he basically was, like, calling him out about, like, um I forget the exact line about... 
about evil and good. There's a whole thing oh, he says um, there. D- d- tell me about the loneliness of good. Does it compare to the loneliness of evil? Like, like any other movie, that'd be like like the Oscar moment, you know. And it's yeah. like it's just and he delivers it with like such like he. It's not chewing the scenery because I feel like. He knows what film he's in. He knows the character he's playing, but like he gets Skeletor and anybody else would have mishandled this. And he is so like, however I end up feeling about this movie, and we'll talk about our feelings at the end. Like the, he is a reason for anybody to watch this film because he is amazing in this. And that's the thing that, yes, he goes very broad in his performance, but at no point does it feel like he's, acting down to the material he is a hundred percent committed to the role that he is playing to the reality of skeletor this megalomaniacal being that that wishes to conquer the galaxy and everything that's inherent in somebody like that because he's totally invested in it he does kind of uh portray a sort of reality to this character and that's why i think it really works it doesn't feel like somebody who's thinks he's above the material and is just kind of having fun he legitimately is invested in it he he still looks like he's having a blast but he's doing so while still bringing a kind of truth to the character yeah and his and again we talked about the costuming like it it I understand that they're limited by just the facial prosthetics a little bit, but everything else about it works. And like, even when he gets like, you know, uh, Uber sized or whatever you call him, like when he wears like the, you know, the basically the gold armor, he just super and, Saiyan Skeletor. Yeah. There you go. Over 9,000. Uh, and he is just, it's, it's awesome. Like, and I, I absolutely love it. And, uh, say what you want about the shortcomings of the film, because there are a few, he is not it. And his portrayal of the character is not it as well. And I, that that is a reason to come back to this movie over and over again. Yeah, I agree. And going back to you mentioned the design, I actually think looking back at it when I was a kid, you know, the characters that were from the property already that hadn't been created from whole cloth for the film, you could easily tell who they were. Like there was no doubt in my mind looking at Skeletor that that was Skeletor and looking at just some of the small details. I don't know how I, I missed this, but the fingertips of his gloves are actually small little skeletons. Uh, um, not skeletons, I'm sorry, skulls. I don't know if you noticed <laughs> yep. that. I didn't notice that, no. Yeah, and, and like the amount of the level of detail that is put into that costume, He-Man, I think that that's as, as close to anything else as you're going to get in, in making a uh, real-life version of that character. I mean, they added the cape, which I thought actually looked even cooler. Um, it really does. I really like that design. The design of uh, Karg, Blade, uh, Beastman, and I'm missing the, the fourth one. Um, Sorod. Sorod, yeah. Those are all really good designs, and if you look at the William Stout artwork that I posted, they're all really close to what was actually designed for the film. So whoever was doing, you know, because it's Richard Edlin, I think, doing the visual effects, but I don't know who is doing the actual costuming and... Um, practical makeups mm. and things like that. Like all that stuff is really well done. Um, and I had another point that I just lost as I was trying to think of the name who was doing the special effects. But um, what I think also, when I think of properties like this, I'll go to say the Transformers. And I realize that this is a movie that's made 20 years later, the the first Michael Bay Transformers. One of my problems that I had with it was that I couldn't tell 
who these iconic characters were supposed to be. Well, I, I, to no, quote somebody I know. Oh, oh, oh. No, I'm oh. just saying. Yes. Let him finish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when, when they're fighting, yes, they do look like two trash cans just rolling around. But, like, even Optimus Prime, they, they didn't even bother to go, like, he's red and blue. He's blue with, like, red flames. He doesn't look like Optimus Prime. Um, uh,. Bumblebee, who was always a gold Volkswagen bug, suddenly becomes a Camaro. Um, and I realize that it's 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 bitching and it's 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 being nitpicky. But like when I look at the characters that were from the property in, in Masters of the Universe, you could easily identify them, and they upped the designs. Whereas with Transformers, I'm like, I guess that's Optimus Prime. It, it's got his voice, so that's Optimus Prime. I, I once heard the Transformers film described as, from someone that I know, as a bunch of spare parts thrown into <laughs> a tumbler to tossed around. That was uh, actually me. I know. That's <laughs> And I think yeah, I take described a bunch of scrap them. metal, you throw it on a rock yeah. tumbler, yes. and that is the aesthetic. Um, I would argue Force. that Optimus Prime looks like Optimus, but not the rest of them, like, doesn't look a lot like them. But I've, it's Except like they, you... they changed one of the core d- uh, design elements of Optimus Prime, and that being the mouth visor. Yeah. Yes, he has it when he goes into battle mode, but he shouldn't have it. He should always have it. That's Optimus Prime. I agree with that. Stupid people <laughs> also Soundwave Sorry, looked a lot like Soundwave when he wasn't a satellite like he looked he looked a lot like Soundwave I'll give I'll, but but you know two out of 300 like robot designs or whatever I'm just saying that like they did a good approximation of being able to tell you who the characters are and also upping those designs and, and also in the G.I. Joe film Snake Eyes was the black clad ninja that's it that's all <laughs> everything else you know you get one you get one right it's fine right no it's not fine but you're right they gave him lips which i thought <laughs> they was did it was really dumb <laughs> yeah it is really dumb so i'm hoping that with the next he-man movie that they do like a social network thing where they just take like army hammer's body and then put everybody's head on him that's what i really <laughs> hope <laughs> that's what i really hope they do Make sure everybody all the characters have to have the exact same body <laughs> <laughs> Even the women, like just no, no, the what... women get their own sculpts, but they all have. They also have to use the same. Woman how sculpt. amazing would that be, though? If they use the same, like they just got like the same dude, and they're like, nope, that's how they all look. This is Eternia. It's you know, it's a women well, look this get, way. They get Brian Cage because he's actually dressed up as He Man in the times in the past, and then you just have him body double everybody. That would be amazing. I, I would still love like that. the idea of it being Terry Crews. No, oh, I would love that too. <laughs> I'm down. All right, so. Um, as good at as at very least, make him man at arms. He already has the mustache. <laughs> so the, the, I, I made up a quick game here uh, of a real, real Masters Universe character, or fake Masters Universe character. So Al Gore, I'm going to put this to you. Okay. Um, actually, Steve can't see my list, so I'll also put this to you as well. So I'll ask a question. One, like we'll do one or the other. Okay. Uh, all right, Al first. This is the real He-Man character or not? And it's a real short game because we just talked about names. Snout spout or hose nose? Uh, Snout Spout is the real one. That's correct. All right, uh, Steve. Um, Manado or Cyclone? Cyclone. Okay, that's the all right. That's the real one. All right, El Goro. A Lizard Man or Snake Man? And I assume that's Snake Man with multiple S's. Yes. Okay, but I'm pretty sure it's Lizard Man. It's Lizard Man. I'm not yeah. good. I'm not good at making up fake names. All right. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm sure that somebody, would, if they had thought of Snake Man, they would have used that. The, no, there's something I was looking up like later after I like I looked up all the characters. There's one that kind of has a name similar to that. I'm like, oh, that's not that's that's close. Like Slither or something. It was weird. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, Steve. Uh, Clawful or Graboid? Clawful. Okay, that's right. <laughs> Bonus points. Where's Graboid from? Graboids, uh, the uh, Tremors. Yes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll grow. Uh, Scareglow or Haywired? 
Oh, crap. I'm going to go with Scareglow. <laughs> that's, that's right. Okay. okay. <laughs> I like that the names I just came up with like off the top of my head are, uh, you know, no one can tell me they're wrong. All right. All right. All right, uh, Steve. Are we going to Incisor or Fangman? Incisor. Fangman's the oh. real one. Oh! All right. All right. All right. Uh, El Goro. Uh, Slushhead or Slambrain? Slushhead or sp- Slambrain? Oh, uh... All right, that'll, I am not sure about this. We're going to go with Slam Brain. Slushhead is the real one. Slushhead. Wow. <laughs> I've never yeah, heard of that. People attack them and then they get brain freeze, I think. And then they just like they get paralyzed. All right. Sounds right. All right. Steve, uh, Plundor or Lutor? Plundor. That's the real one. All right. Yeah, but you had to think about it. Though, I did. Right? All right. Uh, El Goro, uh, Strong Arm or Briceps? <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to be bright, but I'm going to go with strong arm. You're right. I almost made it broceps, but I thought that was a little too much. <laughs> All right, Steve. Uh, goat man or sheeple? Goat man. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second. I'm like, sheeple? All right, I'll go our last one here. Too bad or three bad? Too bad. Okay, that's right. Okay. Too bad's got two heads, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I don't know. I just saw the name. I'm like... <laughs> Here's the thing. While I didn't, I was not huge into the toys or the cartoon. I had a friend growing up that was super into them, so I I mocked him about so many of the characters' names that most of these I knew. Well, there's Fisto. Come on, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I mean, Star Wars had Kit Fisto, yeah. so whatever, right? Um, all right, so. Uh, we could talk about like box office or whatever, but like in a second because this was '86 was a big year. For everybody but canon, but we'll just throw that out there. Um, is there any any other elements of this film? Like I, I, I don't I don't want to skip over anything because I I enjoyed this the second time through watching it, knowing what I was getting into. Um, but you know, the, you could tell that it's almost you could feel like the budget falling away as the movie goes forward. It, it is uh, it's something to kind of see as you're going along, where it's like, oh, they keep running out of money here, and it keeps running out of money until the end. Well, one thing I did want to kind of expand yeah. upon was that sort of connection to Jack Kirby's work and sh- and talk about how that was a deliberate f- thing on behalf of the director, Gary Goddard, that he was a tremendous fan of Jack Kirby, and he pretty much designed so many of the elements of this film to reflect Kirby's work. Uh, as was pointed out, you can pretty much look at some of the core casts, and they line up a lot with what Kirby was doing on New Gods. I mean, Skeletor is essentially Darkseid. He-Man is essentially Orion. Uh, Gwildor is essentially Metron. Uh, the High Father is essentially Sorceress. And we were talking about this, the scene with the flying discs. That's right out of New Gods. Mm-hmm. That's basically what uh, Orion would fly around on. And when I heard about that, that was right around the time that, uh, you know, because I grew up with these film, this film, but it was around the time that I was getting into reading old Jack Kirby stuff, and it really sort of gave me a greater appreciation for what this film was and sort of this the aesthetic that they were approaching. I mean, even the conceit of the cosmic key, that's essentially a boom tube. Yeah, no, that's that's fair, yeah. Um, and actually, now that I think about that shot of Skeletor's skiff coming through, it literally looks like a boom tube. It's yeah. Right? Exactly what they look like. Which is funny because I wasn't familiar with the boom tube until I recently read the new run of Mr. Miracle 
And there was a whole big, like, it's, you know, that's all new gods. And highly recommended, by the way, anybody that's going to check that out. Like, that's a good, uh, it's a We fun... may talk about that on a future episode, because you've given that to me to read, and, and I haven't gotten but, to it yet. Or if you've not, re- you not read the new Mr. Miracle, it's like 12 issues. It's fantastic. Um, I'll have it, to check that out. It takes, I, I like some of the older Mr. Miracle comics. It so. takes the piss out of the new gods, but it does it in a, a different way. I'll just say that. Um, but yeah, nice. you're right. That's a boom tube. Like, now that you say that, it makes perfect sense. Um yeah, so I like that he w- the Goddard was shooting for obviously family friendly, and he was shooting for something that represented the toy line. But you could tell his aspirations were bigger than that, like because I feel mm-hmm. like you could have pandered, you could have pandered and made this like the most idiotic kid stuff. Like I'm not saying that the scripting and the pacing of this film are perfect because they're not. But never do I feel like this is like playing to like 10 year olds, nor do I feel like this is playing strictly to adults. Like it feels like it's trying to walk that line because at this time, um, you know, kid friendly live action movies with the exception of a couple, which ties directly into what you've been exploring recently in your show talk without rhythm. It's not been the most profitable of films. Like, so he had to try to thread a lot of needles to try to get this to appeal. And I can understand his approach. Yeah, and it was it was sort of a uh, a somewhat of a risky approach to it because while there had been successes with sort of barbarian uh, based things, and at, at its core, He Man is an, an, another take on Conan. The idea to do it in a child friendly context has its own sort of pitfalls. I mean, when we look at the follow ups to 1982's Conan the Barbarian, whether it be Conan the Destroyer or Red Sonia, those were lighter in approach and they weren't as well received. So you can kind of see them as sort of kind of trying to make that mold work again. And it doesn't completely succeed, but I still think there's some joy to be found in here, particularly if you have sensibilities that lend towards the weird sci-fi stuff i mean if you're a sci-fi purist well you probably wouldn't like he-man anyway because it's got way too much barbarian in it but when you are dealing with a property like he-man you could either be slavishly devoted to what had been established before or you kind of use it as a license to do whatever you want and it sort of felt like they were leaning a little bit more in that direction which is why they threw the mashup of the real world other than the fact that it really helped with their budget which is why we we could let frank langella to go as broad as possible in his performance as skeletor the doors were open for them to do make a hugely operatic weird science fiction film and warts and all, I think they kind of accomplished it. Yeah. I mean, is this really that far off from flash Gordon? Like, is this really that far no. off? Like from like, just you're talking about like, you know, you have recently explored on talk without rhythm. You talked about ET. Um, and like, so there's, there's been this like exploration of like, you know, like I mentioned fish out of water, uh, flight of the navigator came out the year before this. Uh, and I, I love that film. And, so there, there was, there's this thing about like, you know, the unknown mixed with like the known, like the day to day. And so there was definitely a market for this. So it's funny because like there, everything about this film feels like all the, the, the winds were blowing in the direction that it should be gangbusters. Right. Like, and for whatever reason, it just feels like a time Cannon gets a hold of something, it just wilts on the vine. And I don't understand like maybe it was just because at this point we talked about how like they announced like 96 different titles, how the industry didn't have faith in them, how like even with this being not maybe like I said, we talked about the hover hover chase and all that. That looks a little ridiculous, but does it look that much worse than 
uh, some of the projection stuff that they would do, like, you know, and some of the um, rotoscoping that they do for other films at that time, it doesn't look that far off. I don't think it looks that cheap compared to other things we've seen from Canon. It really doesn't. Um, I just wonder why this kind of landed with a thud like it did. Well, I think the, some of the things that might contributed to it, one, this was kind of at the low ebb of He-Man as a property. This It would only be a year or two separate before the dissolution of the toy line. By this point, the television series had ended its new run and they were doing reruns of it. And I think some of the sensibilities of science fiction had started shifting at this point. That, you know, we look at the more, the more successful science fiction films that were coming out in 87, you know, we're four years separate from Star Wars. The most popular science fiction film at this time would be something more like Back to the Future, which came out in 85. Um, trying to remember, think of other uh, successful science fiction films that were really part of this period. Steve, you got anything? Well, I mean, I, I was thinking They Live is, is that 87 or 88? But, that's, but that wasn't, that that wasn't, wasn't successful. successful yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of what else would have been well, out like, around this time. I mean, people talk about Buckaroo Battery. Banzai, but it wasn't that wasn't a big one. Like, it was big, but it wasn't that big. You just mentioned Barry's not included. Yeah. It was moderate, which I know Al Gore has talked about recently. Yep, on talk about it. wasn't wasn't a huge success, but did okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know we're kind of dancing around some of the other ones that we'll we'll mention that at the end here because yeah. like there's a. But I mean, in, in yeah. terms of these kind of um, space operas with this sort of sweep and scope, I think a lot of I think uh, perhaps the the appetite for it was edging off because Star Wars was a couple years. Uh, removed from it ending up and also due to the fact that i think a lot of people were getting burned out on bad star wars ripoffs yeah because i mean you had um what was it um oh um uh, space hunter like that had come out like around return of the jedi time we had uh throw a dart at a star wars knockoff that was coming out you're right that makes sense um but so you're right maybe there was some fatigue but and so when this movie came out uh, it was it opened at number three that weekend, so that you know that's not ever a good sign. However, to be fair, back then films would stick around a little longer than they do now, and having like a decent opening on the opening weekend doesn't necessarily mean a death knell. However, so um, this film actually opened the weekend it opened up. It was third, the third highest grossing of the weekend, earning uh, second place to Stakeout, which I don't remember that film at all. And also, Richard the, Dreyfus, I was believe, that Richard Emilio Dreyfus and, yeah. Was that Rosie O'Donnell in that too? She's in the second one, another stakeout. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I just I just looked it up. Uh, yeah. I, I found the top ten films of 1987. Only one of them is a science fiction film. Yeah, it, it was Predator. So the number one film that weekend it came out was The Living Daylight. So the Bond film that you just recently had discussed. Again, there's a lot Good of talk. Film. A lot of talk without rhythm connections here. So you're right. So, um, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, so science fiction maybe might be on the way out because we had some highs. Like, uh, was it 84, 85? You had Aliens, you had uh, Ghostbusters, you had Throw a Dart, like the, the Fly, like everything. Like, there was a lot of great films that came out. Terminator. So, Terminator. Um, so, yeah, um, maybe you're right. Maybe we're just kind of in a fatigue moment because that happens, right? There's a cyclic thing where certain things come into play and then they're big and then everybody tries to chase it and that's that, which I know Steve and I did with The Year of the Knockoff. Yep. Like, yeah. Well, and, uh, again, just for this this kind of flavor of science fiction, because like I said, you know, Predator came out this year and that was decently successful. Inner Space was pretty well received, if I recall Interspace, correctly. Yeah. But also that came out this year, talking about the uh, low ebb of, of Star Wars, you had Spaceballs coming out, <laughs> which I love Spaceballs. 
but when when it when the parody becomes you know out there, perhaps that's the sign that the genre needs to take a break for a little while. Yeah, that that yeah, that, that's absolutely fair. So I think that's probably a lot of the reason. But also, I feel like too that industry speaking, like there was a stink around Canada at this point. And like, and so the book, the, the Hollywood, a go, go goes into all this stuff that I have no idea to understand what was going on. But like Canada was entering all these weird deals just to keep capital, to keep making movies at this point. And they were kind of putting themselves like up for, they, they, they never used the word fire cell, but you got the indication that they were like, Nope, just take this. We can make, cause their whole idea was, if we could just hit on one, we'll be back and good. And they kept upping their, their ante every single time. And they kept failing. And this is the thing, like even a film like runaway train, um, which everybody in the industry was like, it's pretty good. Probably would have done better if it wasn't actually distributed by Canon. That says a lot, like not like the quality of the film can't even shine through at this point because Canon is radioactive and anything associated with it is collapsing. So it's it, we're, it's interesting that we're at this point in the year of our, our look at Canon. I was trying to do this chronologically. Like the Delta Force felt like not the peak of Canon, but like the most Canon Canon was. And now they're just like just swinging at everything. That's where I feel like Master Universe and Superman 4 kind of come in where it's like, no, 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 no. We could do franchises. And I feel like this is one of those ones that they really were just like banking everything on. And maybe it was wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, probably was. I mean, the fact that they invested so much into it yeah. and they kind of they broke from their classic canon mold of, you know, make the movies cheap and make a profit. That 1987 was a bad year for them. I mean, because this was also the year that brought us over the top. This was the year <laughs> that brought us Superman four. You know, this this was them really overextending. Well, it's also making some, you know, really low budget and would, would go on to be pretty well acclaimed uh, independent or smaller films like Barfly, for example. Yeah. And I know, um, oh, what's the Christopher Reeves film? Street Smart, I think that's what it's mm -hmm. called. Like, I, I need to, I, I'm going to watch that for the blog. But so just point of reference for, according to Box Office Mojo, um, so we have Master Universe at, 60, at the 65th highest grossing film of the year. Um, we have Over the Top, Steve, question did Overtop do better or worse than Master Universe? Oh, it did way better. <laughs> it did not. It was what? 68. Overtop so, was 68? Really? Master Universe brought in 17,336,000. Over the Top brought in 16,057,000, which, you know, more than like about half of that, if not more, was Stallone's just payment to get into this. Um, do you think Superman 4 Quest for Peace did better or worse than Master Universe? I think it did worse. It did do worse. It came in just underneath over the top at 15 million. Um, Jesus. Yeah. So if I'm scrolling through this, the highest ranking Canon film that I can see here off the top, just from technically mannequin. Cause it was, but it's, it says here it was released by Fox, but I know mannequin was like a Canon production. I don't remember mannequin being a Canon film. Oh, I, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe it I, is, I thought but it I was. just, uh, I thought mannequin was associated with Canon, but it was at 27. Uh, with 42 million. So, um, but yeah, like they, there's nothing in like the top 20 that is Canon related. So like, this was a boon year for like most every film company, except for Canon. <laughs> and they had this mentality reading through this book of like, well, one of them has to hit because the law of averages, it's like, no, that only applies if you apply the same amount of like quality to every single item, maybe. Right. Like you can't apply baseball, statistics to movie making because you can make a shitty film every single time and no one's going to go see it. 
they just keep hoping that they can pull the wool over their eyes for one and make big. Like they did this whole thing too, uh, where they, they, so one of these Canon did was also buy movie theater chains. Like there was a big deal where they bought a chain in, in Europe and they bought one in, in the U S but they thought that, um, that because Delta force did really good here that they would release it in the UK. And it did like so shitty. Like they basically, they, they didn't talk about it again. Like it gave them such a bloody nose. That they're like, well, that didn't happen. Like, and they spent so much money getting out there. So you feel like they're just grasping at straws here, which is unfortunate. I feel like master universe suffers because of where it came in the production cycle of Canon. So that's, that's my, that's my theory. And it's, it's an easily proved theory. <laughs> So that's fair. I, I have a couple of things real quick that I yes. just want to go back to. One is, is uh, um, Goro had mentioned um, Red Sonja, which is a movie that I honestly had just revisited and not in connection because of this, but um, it was on sale for on Vudu. Like Vudu, for whatever reason, seems to be my go to anymore because like everything's always on sale on there. And I'm like, oh, four bucks for, for Red Sonja. Fine. I'll buy it. Why not? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh Watching that film, I would say that, you know, that might be actually the low point because I feel like Masters of the Universe is way ahead after revisiting Red Sonja, which was a movie that I remember liking a lot as a kid. Um, it had Arnold Schwarzenegger as, okay, he's Conan, but he's not really Conan, but he's Conan. Like, it was... Yeah, we can't call him Conan. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and I guess I said Conan like he was uh, O'Brien, not uh, Conan yeah. the Barbarian. Um, but... I remember that movie being a lot bigger in scope than it actually was. And when I look at Masters of the Universe, I don't think it looks that cheap. Like, it doesn't look like... I mean, the you know, cheapness shows if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. If you know that they had to uh, completely sh uh, shoot the final confrontation between He-Man and Skeletor uh, on, on the extreme cheap because literally Canon pulled the, the or shut down production three days before they finished. Or if we, if you happen to notice that all of the city streets are completely abandoned yeah. or that whenever they do a shot of Eternia, it's the same group of rebels be holding their arms up in front of the various <laughs> images of uh, Skeletor just slightly shift or uh, sw flopped around and with different lighting in there. The cheapness is there if you know what you're looking for, but if you're just watching the film, I mean, from a, from a costume design standpoint, it it's not Star Wars level, but it's not, you know, Roger Corman level necessarily. Yeah, like He-Man's a specimen throughout all this. I mean, I know it's his conditioning with Dolph Lundgren, but it's like the, the costuming looks good. Like I said, Skeletor looks amazing. Like Evil Lynn looks good. Sorceress looks good. Like... They do even like, the fight choreography is not terrible. Yeah, well, because um, um, Blade was the stand-in for Skeletor. Um, that actor was the stand-in for him, for Skeletor during like the fight stuff at the end. And mm -hmm. It looks good. Like it looks good. And know? I still think if this movie comes out two years sooner, it's probably a bigger hit. Yeah, or, or I think a so. hit, I should say. Um, but the other thing that I, I I always say this about Masters of the Universe and the He-Man uh, toy line is that. What's wonderful about them is, is they're the kitchen sink property. Like, anything can go. You want barbarians? Great. You want laser guns? Great. You want robots? We'll throw them in there. You want castles? Fine. You want monsters? Fine. Like, it literally, there's nothing, and I hate to put it this way, there's not 
a dumb enough idea. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, they'll make it work somehow. You just described World of Warcraft to me, and I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) But I I do think that that's one of the fascinating things about that property is, is that there are so many things that you can do with it, and it all somehow works together. You know, you... You can't throw uh, you can't throw somebody like He Man into the Star Trek universe. You know what I mean? But like all of the equipment that's used in Star Trek could probably fit in the He Man world. You know, yeah. and I'm sure that crossover is coming from you know uh, DC and IDW at some point. <laughs> but uh... now let's look it up. All right, all I'm finding is weird fan fiction. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, I think that that's kind of one of the things that's wonderful about the property. Like, like Kirk sleeps with Battle Cat or something. You're like, what's going on? <laughs> like, it's green. It works. You know, it'd be terrible. He's cringer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I think that that's actually kind of the magic of that that property is, is that it's got all these things that it can, that can be done with it. And I, I think when you put it as a sci-fi film, yet yeah, it doesn't really you know, hold up. But I, I also think if you're looking at it as the fantasy, the elements of it as just a fantasy film, I think there was also an ebb with that at that point. I think there was taste changing. I think that um, particularly, you know, the films that we mentioned, Predator and this, Night and Day. You know, like Predator is a completely different thing. And that was also a movie I saw in the theater with my friends, and we were all about that movie. So... Yeah, it's it's a very tough time. I think if that movie comes out in '85, it's a big big hit. Yeah, and to me, science fiction is broad enough to accom- to accommodate something like He Man because if even if we look back into the popular franchises of science fiction over the decades, you go back to the early teens or perhaps earlier. I forget exactly the date was. You had Edgar Rice Burroughs doing his John Carter Barsoom mm-hmm. stuff, and that's essentially He Man. Yeah. Well, like when I even met, like we talk about Star Wars, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's some uh, pecks away and some six packs away from not being that far away from each other. Let's, I mean, and yeah. also keep in mind that when, you know, the Star Wars line relaunches from Kenner slash Hasbro in 94, 95, while they're not quite He-Man stature, they, they beef those characters up. up. Yeah, they beat like Luke and Han and all of them all look like they've got these super massive chests. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So the yeah. effects of Masters of the Universe was still being f- felt 10, 15 years later. Yeah, it's even being revisited now. Like I bought you, I think I bought you a Freddy uh, He-Man inspired figure. What was, what's the company? Yeah, doing yeah. Right um, I I don't remember if you got me the Freddy or if you got me the Jason. I no, have Freddy I and Jason. Freddy because I want to get you the Jason. Okay. I can't find it. But they, there's all the movie, like the movie horror guys that have come out with like the physiques. It's of, not NECA. Is it Super Seven? Maybe my, it, it's not NECA. But uh, I think it is Super Seven. Yeah. Okay. But it's like you could tell that there's there's a love there for that type of throwback to that, and it's still being felt now. You know, like mm-hmm. there's an impact to the series. There's an impact to maybe maybe not so much the film, but I mean, I feel like that's going to grow with time. Like if people go back and remember Howard the Duck fondly, then this is going to grow too. You know, and. Um, so I will say upon my second watch after not being awake for like 20 hours and then being stuck in a theater, this played much better for me. I still hate Gwildor. You can tell me I'm wrong, but, um, (laughs) this movie's a lot more fun. Uh, it is sudden and, and immediate, whatever, um, 
he's about to send uh, Courtney Cox and uh, Tom Paris back to where they're at. And, and he's like, I can send you any place in time. And she's like, no, we're fine. And she's like, Oh shit, my parents. And then she just, yell, yell. <laughs> which would have been amazing if that would have actually happened. If she just really yelled, Oh shit, oh, my shit, parents. My parents, Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and then like that has like a back to the future kind of like, Oh, everything's fixed now. You know, that's fine. It's, 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 it's a fantasy film. I'm not upset about it. It also feels very um, like labyrinth esque. You know, in the sense of like, oh, everything's been put back to right even better than when we left it. You know, I can and see that. yeah, so I don't have a problem with that. But it's like, I can see it, it, you know, it hasn't aged the best, but it ex- it is of its time. And I had a lot more fun with this film the second time around than I did the first time. I could I can tell you that because I'm like, this is an hour and forty five minutes. I want to go home. That was the first first time through. But I got my five bucks back, and I still have it here. Well, I think if they would have, you know, made that Masters of the Universe 2, they should have focused, they gone back to Earth, they focus on Courtney Cox's parents, and they find out that it's triggered some sort of final destination thing <laughs> where people are just dying all around them because they shouldn't have lived. I like it. Yeah, that would have been my sequel. Well, I, we, I definitely yeah. like that better than Albert Pyun's uh, pitch <laughs> where He-Man was going to pose as a uh, football quarterback. Yeah, the post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> <laughs> Only if he was part of the Raiders. I feel like that's where you need to be. That I could say. Yeah. No, but like, wasn't uh, Flash Gordon also like a quarterback? Yeah. Wasn't like the yeah. thing? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure that's what they Flash were going Gordon. for. Yeah. But yeah, so there was supposed to be a sequel to this, and we'll talk about that like when we get to Cyborg. Um, but the the sequel didn't come together correctly. There was some design work for that. There was some pre-production. And Cyborg, which we'll get to that in December, is like a mishmash of Master Universe Part 2 and Spider-Man. We'll talk about that when we get there. So whenever Skeletor says, I'll be back, it's not true. But you love the fact that he shows back up again at the very end after the credits just to taunt you. Because that is what Skeletor does, and I loved it. It was the first film that I ever saw that had a post credit sequence. There you go. So... All right. Um, is there anything else, like Steve? Is there anything I know? Uh, we, you've been off to the sidelines. I've been asking questions. And no, I mean, when I think about this film, one of the questions that I ask myself is: is how much of my like of it is? And I, I do this with all the films that I saw as a kid that I hold near and dear to my heart. You know, how much of it's nostalgia? How much of it is really being able to appreciate the film for what it is? Does the movie have its shortcomings? Absolutely. Um, but I think that you know. I don't remember having like a very I, my my remembrance of walking out of the theater was just being not disappointed, but it not being what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think growing up in it with that movie and then just appreciating it now for what it is, I think I have a, a more um, appreciative, I guess, um, appreciative appreciation. I have a more positive appreciation for it that I may may have had when I originally saw it. But I think that, you know, I don't know and I guess maybe this is just my personality, but like when you were naming off the movies that were in your 12 hours of terrible, I'm like I, I like that movie. I, I like that movie. <laughs> yeah, the only yeah. one that uh, made me cringe was The Happening. Yeah. Scott, <laughs> oh. To hell with that movie. And to, and to quote my one buddy who called it not much happening. Or, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's that's the truth. So the crap movie I almost walked out of and I snuck into that movie. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um not great. Um it's 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 no uh, Miami connection. Yeah. <laughs> But um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's. I think I think I like I said, I didn't see this in the theater. Well, I did see this in the theater, but like I was much much older, and my 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 opinion was different at the time. Uh, I you know, I can see this being like, had this. I had actually watched this when I was age appropriate, 
I'd probably think, oh, it's a movie for me, but I wouldn't have felt like it was a kid's movie. You know, like kind of like how the Goonies, I don't feel like at the time when I watched it, that it was a kid's movie, but it was like something that was completely for me. I feel like that was kind of that edging into that taboo of like, there's other things going on with this as opposed to being a kid's movie. And I feel like that's Master Universe, though. So El Goro, um, I guess we'll, we should ask you your thoughts on this movie, but we also have our questions that we ask about canon films. So, okay. yeah, um, you know, because I stepped on it. So we'll just get to that right now. So unless you have other uh, trivia, knowledge, thoughts about the film that you want to share before we get to our parting canon shots. No, like like I said, um, I, I truly do enjoy this film. And yes, so much of it is wrapped up in the childhood nostalgia, because as I said, this was my primary vision of He-Man. But nostalgia can only take you so far and if you if things don't necessarily resonate with who you are as an adult then you may you may find yourself resigning them into okay i liked it as a kid but it's not for me now this still largely works for me now and so much of it is because it is a live action realization of the weirder elements of science fiction that i do enjoy that is ultimately anchored by that tremendous performance from Frank Langella. Yes. It's by no means is it a perfect film, but it's still one that I love returning to from time to time and just to get wrapped up in the overarching weirdness of it. I, I, I adore this film. There's a reason that when you bought me the poster for the film from at a uh, recent Cinema Wasteland, it's still hanging in my office. It's like right behind me. If we had a webcam, you would see it lurking over my shoulder because I adore this film. Well, and I, I knew you I knew you would love that. Someone's like, I got to get you the Master Universe poster, <laughs> regardless of how drunk I was at the time, because I bought plenty of things that day. And that was, yeah, that, we found out that was a bad decision to get drunk and then go walk around the floor. <laughs> yeah. I still have a Darkman poster I've not put up yet. It's not, be- <laughs> not because I'm upset at the purchase. I just haven't put it up yet. But I bought a lot of things that day. Um, so, all right. So our parting cannon shots. Uh, is this film better or worse than the Apple? I'll go to Steve first. Yes. <laughs> Like no further explanation. No, yes. I, I mean it is. I and they are two similar films. They both, in the sense, they ran out of money towards the end. But there's no. And, and he man gets into a sky Cadillac. I was and just gonna say, <laughs> God doesn't show up in a Cadillac out of the sky and end the movie. So even if he's just fighting Skeletor in the dark, it's a better ending. Yeah. So so Okor, have you seen the Apple? I have. Yes. All right. All right. Well, yes. I will say it's better. Uh, both films uh, had an electronically driven soundtrack, but uh, He-Man ha- or Master of the Universe had the good sense not to put lyrics behind it. That's true. I will say that um, I did enjoy this better. There is no BIM dancing going on, but and it's also not set in that far away year of 1994. I'll also give it that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I do. I think this film is better than the Apple. I just feel like that's our litmus because it's the first one we watched and. Yeah. Yeah, so second question. This is our Menachem Index. Like, how much do we feel that Menachem Golan influenced the film? I'll also put this to Steve. What, what's, your, what's your percentage of this? I feel like outside of the budget, not much. So I'm going to say maybe 25%. Yeah. You uh, know. Al Gore, where do you think you land with uh, Menachem, uh, his, his influence? I would I would probably end up going higher. Uh, uh, I would say around sixty percent. There is zero. There is zero of the artistic approach of Menachem Golan, if you can actually call what he does art. But uh, as far as spend all the money, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty well wrapped up in this film. I, I, okay, so I think I want to land somewhere in the middle. I want to put a forty on me because, like, I feel like he didn't have direct influence of like the directing. 
but I feel like in his mind, oh, it's a toy line. Oh, you know, we got some named actors. This will make money. You know, I feel like there's that, um, you know, so, but I, there's not the weird, like horrible jokey tendencies. Like there's not the weird, like, um, like being mean to women that seems to happen a lot That's of the true. films. <laughs> there's not a lot of weird, like racism that shows up either. Like, I mean, not intended, but it does show up sometimes. Yeah. And there's not a lot of weird edits. Like, I feel like, you know, he didn't have, at this point, he was probably always on the phone with the media and also the sec. So he probably didn't have a lot of influence on this film, but just enough, you know? So you could probably tell from the casting that it was influenced by Menachem. You could just imagine the conversation get me, get me the Drago. Yes. Get me the Drago. Uh, but Menachem, he doesn't speak English. You don't need to speak English. We make him a star. Yeah. That's, yes. That feels like that feels very appropriate. Um, so uh, last question, would you recommend this film to anybody, Steve? So this puts me in a tough position because I've already stated the fact that, you know, my wife had no interest in watching this. Um, and I, she's usually the barometer I use to how I would recommend this. But then I also think about films that are of this era that I re- would recommend to people. Like, I love the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie that was made, the, the first live action movie. Um, and I'm not talking about the one from four years ago. I'm talking about the one from, I think it's 1990. Um I still think that movie is a ridiculously well-done movie, um, and it's a lot of fun. But even that, I don't know that I can... And I I say it's a better movie than this, but I don't know that I can recommend it to other people because I don't know their tastes. Um, So, so much of this is just on taste. If it's it's somebody that I know who enjoys canon films, yes, I would put this at the top of the list. If it's somebody like my wife who, you know, doesn't have any interest in this other than, like, maybe to make fun of it, then I wouldn't... I wouldn't recommend it. So, all right, now, Goro, would you recommend this film to anybody? Yes, because Frank Langella's performance is a treat that should be experienced by everybody. Yeah, I, I would. I'd agree with that. I feel like this is a film that um, you could probably show people like sight unseen, and then yeah, you're going to get comments and some laughter. But I think there's an enjoyable ride all the way through. Like, and and I think that once you get past that, though, there is some decent bones to this film. Is this something I want to revisit often? Probably not. But like I said, upon rewatch at a better context, I did enjoy this film more the second time around than I was expecting. So I did, I did enjoy it. So that's not true of all the canon films we've watched. Um, I'm looking at you directly, New Year's Evil, which Steve's not seen, but that movie's not good. It can't be any worse than King Solomon's Minds. I know that movie is. <laughs> that's ha- my low bar for the season so far. We got two movies to, or three movies to get through right now. King Solomon's Minds is my low bar. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that movie, it's it, it has its moments, but yeah, it does. Uh, yeah. All right, um, that's going to do it for our talk about Master Universe. Uh, El Gore, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for picking this film and for coming on the show and talking about it. We truly appreciate it. Absolutely, my pleasure. And um, I'll have you plug your things, but let's let's hold off for the big reveal until the end because I you know, sure. leave people waiting. So, how can people find you? Uh, well, you can find me on the website for the primary podcast. That's the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. It's can be found at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com. It is a movie discussion podcast. Every week I select two films that are tied together by a theme and discuss them. Uh, currently, we are in the middle of what I've uh, called September, which is a very nostalgic uh fueled journey through 80 science fiction films. Currently, we've done Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T., and the most recent episode is Short Circuit and Batteries Not Included, so we're definitely in the wheelhouse 
of Master of the Universe. And if you want to reach out via the podcast, you can find me on Facebook. Just do a search for Talk Without Rhythm. There's a group you can ask to join, joining the conversations that pop up on there. Yeah, perfect. And hopefully people will pay attention because Steve and I were on for uh, an animation episode talking about Star Wars Clone Wars. Yeah, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And that was like a probably a six month long episode, if I remember right. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, so, all right. And you can find us on Invasion of the Podcast. We have a Facebook page. You also have a blog, invasionthepodcast.com. I have not updated it recently. I will get back to it. I apologize. It's been kind of that weird, like in summer going into fall skid. I Oh, you guys, more Canon films. I will get to it. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Music, wherever you find your podcast, rate and review us. That would be greatly appreciated. And Steve, how can people find you outside of the show? Uh, you can find me at my Superman 4, the Quest for Peace fan page. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, you can find me at the Saturday Night Slasher.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter under or Facebook under the Saturday Night Slasher. Twitter, I think it's just the Saturday Slasher. And uh, yeah, well, we've got uh, some events that are going to be coming up here towards the end. Uh, we've got two bo- two shows booked that we'll talk about uh, when we get closer to those, but uh, two shows coming up at the end of the year. And then we've already booked our first show for 2020. Nice. So, so how's issue 300 coming? That's my question. It's coming, it's coming along <laughs> really great. Now that it's all written out from last episode. Yeah. I just I need the I need the throwdown between a well, slasher. Todd Saturday? No, it's Jeff Saturday. Jeff Saturday, homicide detective <laughs> that has now realized that he himself is a slasher. I just wanted the throwdown between a science slasher and the Monday Morning Murderer. That's what I, really <laughs> I was really supposed want. to draw that. I forgot I about that. <laughs> so wait, would the Monday mur- Morning Murderer be the guy that critiques the other slashers and says that he could do it better? Yes. Oh, that's be actually perfect. pretty good. My, in my okay. mind, it's 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 a person wearing like the slasher mask, but with like a pair of glasses, sitting at a desk, <laughs> and like kind of like having a crumpled like like shirt and tie, and like just like a calculating machine, and yeah, I, I, that's my in my mind what it is. Uh, but maybe a little bit more like, you know, just just a nicer hairdo, like behind the mask. That's what I see as the Money Morning Murderer. It's like Milton from Office Space. Yes, uh. but with the mask on. And, and his his weapon of choice is a red, red, red swing line stapler, yes. Now uh, I'm just imagining like a uh, uh, slasher talk radio and then people calling in to critique the various kills from the weekend prior. You know there would be people that do that. Be like, oh, it wasn't oh, enough it neck action. <laughs> well, for some reason, it made me go to uh, Psycho 4 when you said that, because that's uh, half of that that's movie. Ba- <laughs> that's basically the plot of Psycho 4. <laughs> Thanks, Mick Garris. Yeah. All right. So um, so the next episode. So, okay. So here's, here's some housekeeping. And this is the big announcement, because we're going to do a crazy, like, MCU crossover. It's about to happen. Uh, so Steve and I, we're going to be off for the next two weeks. However, because, well, I'm going to be in Vegas soon. It'll be a lot of fun for me, not Steve. Steve's not coming. I'm but, not going yeah. to Vegas. <laughs> I'm hoping just to go and take my entire life savings, which is like $7 and bet on black, because that's what Wes Snipes would want me to do. And he's always good with money. So I just figured <laughs> I'd do that. No. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> so what's going to happen is, is that Al Gore has, has graciously asked us to be on his show, Talk Without Rhythm, for his very next episode. Episode. So we're going to do that and we're going to let everybody know that you can listen to us there and then that'll be available next week and then we'll be off a week and then we'll be back for October for Halloween, like the Halloween month. We'll figure all that out when we get there. So, Gora, what is the next episode that you've graciously invited us on to your show? Well, the next episode, which will be episode 485 of the podcast, will be a pairing of The Last Starfighter from 1984 and Explorers from 1985. 
Yeah, one of those is a good movie, so we'll talk about both of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Am I gonna get double teamed on Explorers? Because uh... I don't think so. I think okay. I'm gonna get double. I think I'll get double teamed on Explorers. So no, that'll be a lot of fun. And I feel like just because of just by happenstance, I feel like our conversation of nostalgia in the '80s. This is folded in wonderfully in what you're doing with your sci-fi. Sorry, September uh, episodes. Yeah, I'd like to think that we planned it this way, but it really didn't happen that way. It just kind of came together. Yeah. So we'll be on very soon to talk to uh, on his show about those movies. So I hope you guys enjoy us there. We'll post all that information on our page. So yeah, I think that's going to do it for our talk about Master Universe. Um, a lot of fun. We learned we learned a little. We learned how I was wrong about associating writers and directors. That was important. Uh, we learned the real names and fake names of different characters from Master Universe, and uh, we learned. That uh, high school gymnasiums catch fire real easily, which we didn't talk about that, but do they ever? Incredibly easily. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah, I think that's going to do it uh, for the show. Uh, Thanks, Elgore, for coming on. And I was going to say, I was going to thank Steve, but Steve, but you know, Steve, thank you. Thank you. I'm here anyway. I just like to say to everyone, good journey. Good journey. Good journey. there, I'm Adam, Prince of Eternia. This is my kitty, Mr. Cringer Pants, the most cutest kitty in the universe. Fabulous secret powers revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and sang...
my life is still trying to get off that great big hill of hope. For a destiny, Sean.